Welcome to the Design Emergency podcast. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with my friend and fellow design obsessive Paola Antonelli. We're both committed to championing design as a social, political and ecological tool that can help to forge positive change. This is the first episode of our new podcast series where we'll interview global design leaders of different ages, genders and heritages who are at the forefront of innovation in different areas of design. And who better to to begin with than one of the most influential architects of our time, the mighty David Adche, or Sir David, as I should properly call him. Um, so David, welcome to Design Emergency and thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure, Alice. It's such a pleasure to join you. Well, Paula and I are thrilled to kick off the podcast with you. Now, first, something about David before we talk about architecture's role in Africa's future. Now, David was born in Tanzania to Ghanaian parents. As his father was a diplomat, the family lived in many countries before settling in London, where David studied architecture and founded his practice. He started off by designing houses for friends, moved on to libraries and art spaces, including his first major project, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver, which was completed in 2007. And the following year, he was given a landmark commission to design the magnificent National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. David has since taken on ever more ambitious commissions while pursuing a personal project of researching architecture across the continent of Africa. After being commissioned to design one of Ghana's most important new buildings, the National Cathedral in Accra, David moved there with his family to focus on it and other projects in Africa and internationally. So David, Africa's future is central to all of our futures, politically, economically and ecologically. It's a vast, intensely eclectic continent of thousands of cultures and languages, a rich cultural history, a deeply tragic and brutal political history, extraordinary opportunities and also profound problems. So when and why did you begin your research into Africa's architectural history and its indigenous design? Thank you. That's a, that's a very good summary of the issues at hand with the continent of Africa, Alice. Really, I think that for me, um, looking towards the continent started probably in about 2000. Um, when I started my practice, I probably really started my practice informally around 95, 96, you know, operating from my, my apartment and doing little casual small things. But really formally, it sort of was, it sort of kicked into high gear around, I think, 1997. But by 2000, I started to realize that I really needed to understand more about the history that I'd, or rather the journey that I'd made in the continent as a young, as a young sort of boy, my family, but also that actually I just couldn't get anything that gave me tangible metrics about what was going on on the continent in a really meaningful way, apart from historical documents, some of which seemed um, sort of out of date. So really in, in about 2000, I, I started, decided that I was just going to start making these journeys back um, and they would just be myself personal and I wouldn't take anybody with me and they would just be a little sort of diary on the side so whilst I was doing my projects in London I was flying back to all the countries I started with the first 12 the first six were the countries that I knew that I'd grown up in or you know where I was born etc and then you know quickly grew to the sort of 12 that are really kind of quickly come to mind as urban centers and then from there you know the sort of journey after that into the whole continent. And it took me, I thought I was going to take 
maybe four years, five years to do, and it ended up taking me 11 years to do it. It was 2000 to 2011, and I completed all 54 countries, including South Sudan, which had just recently formed at that time. Um, and that was a huge milestone in terms of really opening up my understanding of the histories of each of these countries and their formations, but also, more importantly, their specific urban histories, you know, their pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial histories, and, and where they seem to be sort of trajectorying into sort of, you know, hurtling into their futures, as it were. And then I sort of, you know, in, I think at that point in 20, sort of around 2011, 2012, when I published the book and did the show at the Design Museum, I became very clearly aware from the response that I had that this was an area that people just had no information on. And it was really, this was before Instagram and, you know, social media sort of rise still. So there were just simply no images of the cities in a way that we are now more used to. If you follow certain people, you'll get sort of certain insights into cities, of course. Um, so it was, a, it was a kind of a large cavity of information that I felt that the built environment just simply didn't understand. And the reason why Africa is important to me, yes, of course, I'm African and, you know, I share a sort of, you know, a heritage uh, with it. But it, it was because here was like the birth, the cradle of civilization. Here's where the kind of most incredible diverse geographies on the planet are. Here is the place where the biggest population explosion is happening. And here's where the largest urbanization, you know, much greater numbers than what is happening in Asia is also happening. And I just couldn't believe that nobody was talking about it. Um, so it seemed to me very clear that the future of urbanization and the planet really are, are really held by what is going to be a major population and a major um, sort of continental urbanization um, in the next, you know, 100 years, I would imagine. And so why were we not digging into it? Why were we not tackling these issues? And and, and I felt that I needed to get deeper into the ground. So after the, the publication of the 54 countries, I started to dive into the history. So the pre-colonial became very interesting to me as a way to really fill the information. I'd sort of, I'd done the colonial and the post-colonial, but I hadn't actually looked at uh, the pre-colonial. So really since 2011, 12, right up to this day, I've been really researching the different histories of the different geographies of different countries and their trajectories and looking at the various civilizations and kingdoms and, and their contribution to urbanization and development. And why was that important? Because these were empires. Most of these periods that I'm looking at are, are empires more than sort of, you know, there's a kind of perception, mostly in, in Europe and in the North, that, you know, it's tribal. There, were, there, there are tribes, yes, of course, but there are empires. And these empires aggregated multicultural groups into civilizations that built architectures that were organizational systems. And I felt that there was something very interesting about understanding that the roots of the continent are in these empires, sort of dotted north, south, east, west, center, that have had a real pedigree in history that needed to be understood. Of course, the numbers were much smaller than the numbers we're talking about now in the 20th and 21st century. But they were large groups in the sort of 10th century, large groups in the 15th century even. They were, those were huge agglomerations of people and they were organized um, with built form. And so I felt that there was something that we needed to learn from that. that there was something just fundamentally important, principally in understanding how to kind of deal with mass urbanization, but also how to create a cultural relationship to the built form and to the environment uh, that really is sustainable and, and culturally relevant. 
anyone who wants to find out more about this, I urge you to follow David's Instagram feed because um, on a weekly basis, he posts on a specific aspect of Indigenous architecture in Africa over the centuries. And it's absolutely fascinating, not least in the focus on Indigenous construction materials and building techniques and so on. So when you first started working in Africa as an architect, how would you describe the architecture scene across the continent at that time? And to what degree did you need to change your way of working to function there? So I really, I built, I think my first, you know, I was very lucky. I had an incredible patron for my first ever commission, which was um, the late Kofi Annan, a really amazing patron. And he, he sort of, I met him in London. He said, look, I have this potential. I really want to create a sort of special project in Ghana. And I would love it if you could take it on. And I was thrilled. And it, and it allowed me to really go back and really think about how to make a piece of architecture on the continent. And it meant rethinking all the things that I had assumed and knew uh, working in Europe, in London specifically, and in the US. I had to sort of rethink that, that process. But also at the same time, I'd learned so much in those contexts, dealing with technology and building systems and and understanding how you know environmental systems um, operated in in the European context. So understanding how to coordinate these services, understanding the structural issues and sort of the engineering excellence that one can achieve, the potential of engineering excellence that one can achieve. I sort of sought to see if I could marry those two things, one looking at the continent, looking at how settlement ha patterns happened and this sort of research uh, and sort of experience that I had from working in Europe and, and, and felt that if I could somehow bring the two together, there could be some benefit that I think could create a very, you know, strong architecture. And, you know, uh, the, the research, I remember the, one of the, some of the first things I said was, Anand, you know, um, one thing is very clear, we, you know, there's no point in building. It was for a private retreat residence that was also to be used by political people for think tanks and meetings. So, you know, we built that and it's, and so I said, well, what would be amazing is to really think of this as a kind of a village a convening village and how do we build a contemporary village with modern materials but also kind of fundamentally understanding the issue so you know the analysis really was like looking at indigenous architecture the idea of agglomerating units that were similar but deformed slightly to just deal with the program and function and to you know instead of it being housing for goats and children and whatever else it became the pavilions that were, you know, uh, for the different sort of user groups. And, and what we said was that we would absolutely abolish the idea of the corridor. What is very powerful in most sort of, um, I would say West African and most, most African architecture is the, the sort of negation because of the climate of the idea of a kind of in-between the buffer corridor. There is an in-between space, but usually it's a cool inside-outside space. So this idea of exploring this transitional inside-outside shaded space that is neither one or the other, but one that mediates between what I call the room-like nature of planning and the in-betweenness became the exploration. And that was a complete like mind change to working in Europe or America where, you know, you're creating, you know, you're, you're dealing with extreme climate drop, you know, so, you know, you can't just make these inside-outside transitions. It's too much of a shock for the body. So you're making sort of a lot of architecture to create circulation as well as use. Whereas I think in the continent, you can go straight to just use and not circulation. And that fundamentally releases architecture. It releases 30% of the programmatic requirement of architecture and allows a much more fluid form, which then became very, very exciting. For me, it was able to unleash an ability to be much more diaphanous. So 
I built this project. It used low carbon concrete at that time, what, what we call it now, but it was basically using the local earth and local dyes to really dye the structural concrete to be the same as earth. So it's a kind of earth tone palette. All these things which are now becoming very sort of fashionable were really things which were just about responding and making a relationship to that knowledge base that I started to put together. So that was a powerful project for me, but, and, and really powerful in the sense that it was supported by a great client. So water reclamation, you know, reuse of water, solar energy, the, ha- the house is more or less off-grid. It, it uses the grid as a backup just in case, but it's more or less off-grid. It's a system that does it. And then, and then working with the family, really creating a garden, which was about local plants. And, and vegetation to create an ecology. So it was a real test case of, you know, how do you actually, and, you know, Kofi Annan really was very interested. He's a, he was hugely interested in agriculture on the continent, but he's very interested in how to create models. And, and I was deeply inspired by his thinking, that he, and, and he would use himself as a way to test those models. So it's like, if, if you're not going to do it, I will do it if I can. And I found that really, I think, deeply inspiring and probably is probably the background of this idea of also coming back to the continent and just doing things instead of talking about it, you know. Well, how wonderful to hear that he was a model architecture um, client as well as so many other things. Such a remarkable man. And how would you describe the architecture scene across the continent at, at that time? Um it's, I think it's at that sort of first, te- you know, decade of the turn of the century, I think that the continent was still grappling with a lot of what I call residue projects, projects that were sort of done clearly in other places that were just sort of being sort of thrown into the African context and obviously value engineered to the point where they were sort of really a sort of poor quality, but also the introduction of a very much, you know, a sort of Western idea of architecture, boxes with technology sort of plugged in and, you know, a lot of energy gas guzzling, you know, sort of architecture, as I call it, you know, which was sort of easy to kind of, you know, design in the West. But if you didn't have the context of, of Africa, you, you would not really understand how you could actually kind of create much more relationships. So this architecture, I felt was, you know, especially the NGO or, or sort of multinationals or foreign companies that were coming in, was sort of creating a lot of these sort of what I call versions of European architecture that seem highly inappropriate to the context. And then really there was a kind of low quality, what I call sort of residual colonial architecture of a sort of rejection from a lot of Africans of their heritage and a, a desire to want to look Western, but, but not being able to afford it and then doing a, what I call a cheap version, a sort of terrible cheap version of it, you know, with metal roofs that cook uh, as sort of spaces and blockwork walls that are high concrete sort of, um, you know, content. Um, not using locals, locals, local earth, misunderstanding that, you know, it's, we have fantastic Kozlano and, and laterite in, in the continent and so can use that very much in structural concrete if it's sieved. And, you know, going to find fine sand and stripping beaches, all this kind of sort of what I call miss, you know, the way in which capitalism creates a kind of aura of good versus bad, <laughs> uh, something which I'm really against in architecture, this kind of sense that some materials are better than others. I'm more interested in the idea that materials just perform within their context with specificity and not that one is a better material than the other. It's something I've been championing. I was championing in London casually, but by the time I got to the continent, it really became like a real issue because one was then seeing the impact of this kind of judgment, really creating a condition on a continent where people were making unsustainable architecture. So there was a lot of that. But then at the same time, there was this residue of, you know, even post, you know, just that beginning of, of post-colonialism, 
of incredible architecture that was modern architecture that was responding, that was trying to learn how to respond. So I'm talking about the architecture of the sort of mid-60s and 70s that was really the sort of beginnings of high tech, I would, I would say, where a sort of tropical response without the sort of development of the technology of air conditioning and mechanical systems was really being tested by a lot of young architects from Europe and from America, from Brazil, from Eastern Europe specifically, and from Brazil, who were making these extraordinary projects, which were really about working within the context of doing these things and teaching the sort of new techniques of modern architecture to local architects. And these also, a generation, started to also pick up that and were using that information with their contextual sort of background of what they wanted to sort of express um, culturally to also make these very, very interesting projects. They had lasted a very long time, low maintenance, because the fashion had moved on, so they were sort of being dilapidated. But there they were, these beautiful fragments that were also incredible lessons. So maybe that gives a sense of the picture. It, it does. And what has changed since then, since the, the first decade of, of this century? Or indeed, have things changed? I mean, there's clearly been much more investment, particularly in, in West Africa and in major infrastructure programmes like the West African Highway. Are they going to avoid repeating the same problems that you've identified? I think that you know, West African Highway and this recognition by sociologists and urbanists that the sort of garland of cities between Dakar and Lagos, uh, I, I would argue going all the way to Douala and Cameroon, sets up the scenario for the great, the largest urbanization, you know, migration from the countryside to the urban context in the history of our planet and potentially is on track to create the largest garland of urbanized, uh, sort of urbanized network of cities that make a kind of metropolis area that will be from a population point of view, really unprecedented in a new model. There's a lot at stake. Uh, I think that a lot of architects like myself and many other architects are now realizing that really we have to create a model that is going to be sustainable for the, for the place and we have to create an architecture that has its own genesis and its own sort of DNA that comes from this. this is, it's going to be a big fight because what you have is a sense of what things are. You know, the, the problem of these two competing ideas of developed and developing is that Developed thinks it knows, and developing has a hard time screaming at developing to say, hold on, we need to adjust, because developed thinks, you know, it can price it, it needs to price it, budget it, and sort of throw it down there. Um, but actually, the, the fit is, is really the problem, um, and how that, that kind of work needs to be done. So, you know, for me, building up the infrastructure of what I call um, creative talent on the continent it's also fundamentally important to be able to build up the database of knowledge to be able to help with this urbanization and this ne negotiation with, you know, the sort of funds which are mostly coming from the north and some of the ex and to be able to challenge the experts that are coordinating those funds and making sure that this work is, is you know, better suited to its context. You know, for instance, in my office, you know, I never wanted a large office, but when I got to West Africa... You know, I've now realized that it's so fundamentally important. So I have an office of nearly 100 people here, and they're all really mostly West African. And the reason I'm sort of increased the office of that size is that I can train excellence. I want these young architects to gain experience and to go form their own offices and to really create a sort of garland of sort of experts here that can really start to deal with governments, local governments and entrepreneurs, and, and really just give better advice and, and to be engaged you know, almost at a political, I mean, really for me, it's political, at the political level of, you know, making sure the built environment has a chance of really being sustainable for the communities that are going to come. Because essentially, we can't build 
the same kind of architecture that is built in the West, not because of cost or anything else, but it's just simply not appropriate. And to, and to, turn, to turn West Africa into a, what I call a 19-degree engine, you know, an Anthropocene sort of spaceship, where everything is modulated by m and e, is, is going to be a complete and utter nightmare. Um, so, you know, how do we make an architecture that allows people to comfortably sustain themselves and their culture and their lives, to be able to moderate the climate very efficiently, and also to be rapidly urbanize without destroying the, uh, the, the ecology of the planet? is such a prescient issue and, you know, definitely worth my lifetime's worth of, uh, you know, engagement, as far as I'm concerned, uh, to push and, and something that I think a generation of architects interested in this region should really pay attention to, this idea of, of a, a kind of new potential urbanisation that just really hasn't been tested. And do you feel part of a broader community um, on the continent that are agitating for that. I mean, you obviously have Leslie Locos, Africa Futures Institute in Accra, the emergence of extraordinarily gifted African architects from different countries, Francis Carré, Mariam Kamara, and, and so on. Yes. No, I think increasingly this community is building and what I call that community of resistance against kind of a blind following of untested precedents. Um, and I hope that it builds even more. Um, so I feel there's a kind of comradeship of, it, of, of common intent. You know, there's a really just wonderful, diverse group of young and sort of, you know, more mature architects like myself, myself and Francis, who are probably the elder, elder kind of generation at this point, apart from the sort of generation before us. Um, so, yes, I feel that increasingly there's a community and there's something, it feels as though there is momentum. Um, I think, obviously... You know, people, everybody wanted to kind of be much more, but there's momentum. What I'm enjoying is that there's a generation of West African architects who are understanding the importance of, yes, getting the training and education where you can, where it's excellent, whether it's Kumasi or the RCA or MIT, but coming back and really supporting the development of the, of the urbanization of the, of, of the continent, specifically the urbanization of West Africa which is really um, the underdeveloped part. You know, East Africa is pretty developed, South is developed, North Africa is pretty developed, but West Africa is not developed to deal with the urbanisation that it's now having to go through. And you are working on significant projects in Ghana and and other African countries. And um, so I wondered if you could describe your objectives for three of them and their intended impact on those places and also the specific challenges that each project poses to you and to start with one that is of um, extreme importance the Ghana National Cathedral in Accra which is intended to be one of the the sort of major centres of the capital. Yeah so um, what I sort of decided was that I was interested very much in work you know using the skills that I'd learned over the sort of 20, 30 years, 20-something years of practice to really propel programs that I feel and, and, and projects which I feel I could give the most to where I wasn't just learning on the job but was, you know, something that I could actually, you know, really hit the ground running and really add acceleration to. So cultural projects and education projects became very important in the sort of early sort of surveying of work. The National Cathedral, which was a very major uh, project that was given by the, the administration, was really about regenerating the centre of Accra, as you said, to create a new urban park, to, to create a new publicness. You know, the, 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 the rapidly urbanising West African city 
is trying to just deal with the kind of infrastructure and the business of infrastructure to the detriment of public space and publicness. And, you know, so what happens is that buildings get built and the sort of residue of the space gets allocated in its most minimal sense to the public. So there's a lot of sort of not very well made sort of side, side roads and pavement areas, but not of any great quality. And, and so what is I'm scared, what I'm scared of uh, in this kind of rapid sort of organization is that everything becomes value, everything becomes about money, and that the idea of planning with public life gets lost and it becomes commercialized as destinations that you have to pay to go to. So something that was important about the cathedral was that in the center next to parliament was to create a space that literally would be a, an urban public park. 14 acres been dedicated to this, to this project to turn into an urban public park that's free for citizens to just come and enjoy that relationship to great nature and landscape and planning. And to create a, a cathedral building, for me, it, wasn't, it was important that it was more than just a cathedral, a space of worship, because um, there are lots of those, but it really provided a new model of public social life. So it's indirectly, it is a sort of, it's a library, it's a music school, it is a, it's a sort of event space that can be rented out by people. It has a kind of fantastic canteen that will talk about cuisine of the, the, of the region. Um, so it is a, a very important religious center, but it's also, a, for me, a social center. So it's a way in which the community can gather and it's also a space that can allow for dealing with the respite of the life. So it's really a cathedral in a new sense, not just to power, but a cathedral that's also to the importance of the public life and the social life of a country. So I became very interested in this project very much and very excited about how it's developing. And I think it will be a profound model of how we maybe can use, you know, these, this you know, Christianity is a very important religion in West Africa. So how do we make, instead of just making large buildings that people just come to once a week, what are these buildings and what do they do within society? And is there a potential for them to be much more than just collection halls and, you know, praise halls, but something more? So I'm hoping that the cathedral really is a kind of model for that. The other project that really is, for me, the twin to that is the national is the program for hospitals, which really sort of came as a result of really what COVID, the COVID sort of focus put on you know, what is the medical situation? What is the sustainability of communities across the country in relation to access to medicine and access to diagnostics? More than medicine, access to diagnostics became really the issue. How we, we have the doctors, how do we place them in places where they can actually deal with the communities? So we're working on this very ambitious project to build as many as 111 hospitals in every district across the country. And it's a really fascinating project because we're sort of working with prototyping local techniques and materials to create a very sort of what we feel will be a strong piece of architecture that also becomes a social center. So it's a hospital, not as a kind of engine that you sort of avoid and don't go to unless if you're sick, which is what they sort of become, but a space that actually is more a kind of welcoming social space where you, there's a pharmacy, there's all the other things you need that people can use. There's a park, there's an urban space. There are little sort of commercial sort of activities that happen within the hospital ground. So it's really using the hospital also as a way to kind of encourage another kind of public life um, aspect and to make health very seamless with the relationship of the society. So the, the hope is that when we finish this, you know, it's going to take, you know, maybe a decade to finish them all, but certainly 20 or 30 of them will be finished in the next year or so, which is a huge statement uh, because of the push of the administration to kind of deliver that. Um, and the hope is that this will also become a model, a sort of a counter model to the sort of the city project, you know, of 
Accra and its eminence as a city place with high population, but also the regional uh, sort of relationship to how architecture can start to create a relationship and uh, a sense of, you know, the power of what architecture can do in this community. So these hospitals are low buildings, they're court based on courtyards, which is a kind of absolute courtyard compound typology, which is really the kind of familiar typology of West Africa. And we hope that they really become a sort of springboard for a model of how we do these kinds of really important infrastructure developments for these communities. And then the third project that I want to sort of talk to you about is maybe the sort of a really kind of powerful project in Benin, which is to create the first national, but really, I think, globally relevant museum that really deals with um, West African culture, most specifically Edo culture and Benin culture, which is really the Athens of, I think, the continent. It's really, you know, if, if Athens is important to Europe in terms of the evolution of Europe, I would say that Benin and Benin culture really informs almost all the kingdoms that you see in West and Southern Africa uh, as a form. And so it's a very important place. And the Benin bronzes, which have been, you know, have got tons of press, the governor has really been active in, you know, a city which has been sort of almost ground to a standstill by commercial activity and, not, and a lack of planning post the sort of colonial sort of situation, is really this idea of unpeeling and really getting back to understanding a city with extraordinary heritage and then to but to, to accelerate that, to create this museum that would really specialize in really talking about the great histories and narratives of the region, but also be an engine for the return of a lot of the sort of beautiful artifacts of this culture and civilization, which are in museums all around the world, specifically Europe and America, mostly Europe, to really empower this community and new generations in believing in their history, which has sort of been sort of taken out of their hands. They simply don't have anything around them that really talks about the greatness and the beauty of their culture, because it's literally in museums in the West. Um, and it's ironic that actually what we now realize is that the provenance of, this, of your ancestors, the objects that you make, are very important in the kind of confidence that you have in yourself and your sense of you being able to propel into the future. So there's a very important argument between development and sustainability and this return of these objects and the idea of, you know, helping these communities and these regions really, you know, develop their own ecologies and, and growth. So that is the third project that I've put in front of you. And, you know, for us, really thinking about how do we make that museum, we don't want to make a repeat of, you know, it's not an 18th century Enlightenment palace. It's a new kind of palace. It's a social palace. Again, the social is the kind of theme across all these projects. But it's also about recreating conditions, essentially from erasure, a museum of recreations and key artifacts that create a sort of series of notes across, across its landscape, just to allow for us a generation to really understand, to believe in the power of artifacts and their, their importance in giving, you know, being able to stand next to a gatehouse and understand the scale. When you've lived in a city which, where it was full of gatehouses, but they've all disappeared, and what that meant from just one generation to the other, the loss. So, you know, thinking about those things, really, about uh, in how we make this museum is is really the critical thing. So it's, it's more than just making a building, it's, it's making a building and working with the curatorial content and working with the political content to really make an artifact that we hope will be an engine, a restart, also of a relationship to objects and culture uh, in the region, which we think once we manage to make Imoa happen, there's no reason why, especially in this garland between Dakar and Lagos, the garland of museums um, erupts, kind of talking about the specificity of these cultures, which will be very important for this super dense region. Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful prospect. And 
clearly, and these are three remarkable architectural projects that that any architect would be thrilled to take on, which obviously have a, a very special meaning for you personally. And they will be, I'm sure, extraordinary role models for young architects in the region, politicians, other citizens, in terms of shaping their perceptions of architecture and its possibilities. But what else needs to happen um, for the region to make the most of those possibilities? And specifically in terms of building a, a dynamic design culture. I mean, your compatriot Leslie Locko has described architecture as the laboratory of the future, and that obviously will be the key theme of her Biennale in Venice. What needs to happen within Africa to make the most of its new potential? I, I think what Leslie's doing is unprecedented, and we need Leslie, we need a sort of 10 Leslie's. <laughs> um, we need more <laughs> research, and uh, I always say to Leslie, great, that's one, we need 10 of you. <laughs> um, but we need, we need the dialogue and the information to be happening across this sort of vast region, and we need it to be happening not just at the sort of international level where sort of Europeans are hearing it, but actually where local communities are really engaging with the issues. So we need that transformation to happen on the ground. It really, it's really a skills transfer and a knowledge transfer that needs to also occur um, to really allow for communities to use that the skills and the knowledge to really empower their their own themselves, really. And so I think that there's it's all great coming to dig a well, but it's actually more important to come and talk about you know how to use the land and you know all these other things. <laughs> I'm not trying to diminish one or the other, but I always feel like one creates a dependency and and removes a skill. The other teaches you about how to survive on the context and, and, to, and to create longevity. So I'm more interested in the skills transfer that creates longevity, how to understand the land, how to understand the geography, how to understand how to make the best use of what you're doing, how to understand the ecological issues, how to understand the climate issues, how to understand the, the, the agricultural issues of the fundamental, why are the rain stopping, what's going on, what can you do? I think the knowledge and understanding how we're able to understand the world is really important for everyone to, to have access to. And, and to then make models within that, to actually make meaningful models, which really are talking about transformation, I think that the only way we're going to create a sort of wave, you know, a sort of wave that will really transform and tip the continent the right way. So that's my hope um, from what I can see in the time that I've, I've been here and the time that I'm here. Well, it's all our hopes. I mean, it's such a, an exciting and important prospect. David, thank you so much. You've been an incredibly inspiring guest for the first Design Emergency podcast, as we knew you would be. And for everyone listening, you can find images of the projects that David's talked about on Design Emergency's Instagram feed at design.emergency. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, David. Thank you so much, Alice. Wonderful to talk to you about these issues. We look forward to welcoming you back to the Design Emergency podcast very soon, when we'll be talking to another remarkable force in design now and in the future. Goodbye.